Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love, the government of the government love, the government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by Chase Law Professor Ken Katkin. Hey, Ken. Oh, hey, hey Michael. How are you? I'm doing okay. And, uh, you know, normally, of course, Ken would be doing the show with Trey, but uh, as regular listeners know, Trey has been, well, doing battle, I guess, both with kind of a significant flair in his autoimmune condition, as well as with his insurance company. And, uh, you know, he's been through a lot since he was diagnosed. And geez, I guess it's been around two years now. Uh, The last few months, though, have been really challenging for Trey. And so just as a reminder, any new listener donations we get in the month of December, they're going to be going to Trey to support him during it's a pretty tough time. And also in recognition of all he's done over the last couple of years, battling this under some really, really tough conditions. And you never know it by listening to the the repartee between Trey and Ken on the show. I can only do my best to try to recreate even a part of that, Ken, but I, I will do my level best. So, and, and we do it. We have a lot going on. Some of it's going to bleed over into our, uh, our midweek bonus show. We're going to be talking about uh, Kristen Sinema leaving the Democratic Party, the uh, Warnock beating Walker in Georgia. It's a, a pretty bad week for Donald Trump on a number of fronts. The Democratic National Committee changing the primary system and a whole bunch more stuff. We'll get to whatever we can. And we will start off at that in just one second. Okay, Ken. So I, I thought we'd start with uh, the, the fact that WNBA player Brittany Griner is now back in the United States following the successful conclusion of a prisoner swap in which the U.S. returned convicted arms dealer Victor Bout to Russia. Now, Griner had been in Russian custody for 10 months while Bout had served 10 years out of a 25-year sentence for arms trafficking. And there was some hope that these negotiations might include Paul Whelan, who had been in Russian custody since 2018. And he was convicted of espionage charges, as well as Mark Fogel, a history teacher who's been detained since August of 2021 for charges that are pretty similar to Griner's. He had a small amount of marijuana in his possession for chronic back pain following spinal surgery. And in June of this year, Fogel was sentenced to 14 years at a labor in a Russian labor camp. Uh, So, Ken, what do you think about the prisoner swaps in general and this one in particular? 
You know, it's it's not something I've given a ton of thought to. So you're you'll be getting my kind of extemporaneous thoughts, which I I could certainly be persuaded to change because I don't have firm opinions on this. But um, and in fact, I'm even going to admit um, my my views on this are are probably shaped by my my general trust in the present administration. Like I think I would have been more critical if it had been a different administration. So I just want to admit my kind of you know partisan bias there. But I. I, I feel like just not being someone with expertise in this area, um, it, it does seem to me like the, the the Biden administration showed what I believe is its usual good judgment in um, in in you know kind of thinking about the, the the costs and benefits here. And obviously there are both, right? It's it's good that a, a a U.S. citizen who I think was you know very harshly and unjustly detained uh, in Russia for for largely political reasons um, was brought home. You know, of course, that, that we paid a pretty high price for it, and I think from a lot of people's perspectives, you know, R- Russia got the, the better end of, of the bargain in a certain sense. Um, and so the the question would be: Is it good for us to make a bargain like that? Even if you know one could say they got the better of it, you know, was it still enough of a win win that, um, that 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 we should do it? And it seems to me like yes. Um, you know, I, I I know it symbolically looks bad to to let this guy out, who's a very serious arms dealer who possibly could play a role in uh, help, helping Putin uh, commit further abuses. But really, he's already served 10 years in prison here. There's other people like him who could play that role in, in Russia. It seems hard for me to believe that his personal presence there is going to have any really um, significant impact on, on what Putin is able to do or not do. And of course, it's accompanied by um, stepping up our support for, for, for Ukraine as best we can. Um, in the in the present military engagements and in and in uh, uh, geopolitical diplomacy, so I think generally good. What, what do you think, Michael? Well, I guess there are two ways I look at this. On I agree with you on on about. I think especially given the fact that he's been out of the arms dealing game for a decade, a little bit more actually than that. I mean, connections and networks and things change, and so I think his utility to Putin is going to be. Uh, limited, I guess. And as you point out, other people are providing those sort of services. Certainly they, they filled that void. So on that end, I mean, yeah, Russia got a better deal. I guess I don't blame, I, I'm happy Bl- Brittany Griner is, is back. I, I think it was a huge injustice and that that's a great thing. Uh, but I guess when I think about maybe not so much, uh, uh, maybe not so much, not, uh, not Fogel, but uh, the the uh, Paul Whelan, who there's espionage charges and there's some other stuff going on there potentially with Whelan. But when I take a look at Mark Fogel, who it seems to me that the, the situation is very, very similar to Grimes, except he's an older person who's I would wouldn't be surprised is maybe less able to withstand the rigors of a Russian labor camp. He's been in custody longer. And yet the State Department hasn't even bothered to uh, list him as being unlawfully imprisoned, despite the fact that this August, nine senators petitioned the uh, Secretary of State to, to do so. And this was a bipartisan thing, uh, six Democrats, three Republicans. And it feels to me like in this, like in everything else, it pays to be a well-connected celebrity because, you know, Fogel's just some history teacher from Pittsburgh and, oh, well, he uh, Brittany Griner gets to go to the front of the line because she's, you know, semi-famous. And I, I have a problem with that. 
Yeah, I, I just don't know enough about that, and I, I was pleading that this is really something sure. I didn't know that much about. Uh, but I, I, uh, I, I guess I don't even know that the State Department isn't making efforts to get Mark Vogel out, and I, I don't know enough about the details of his case and why. Uh, you know, yeah. if, if you're saying the State Department hasn't listed as an, as an injustice, I'm, I'm not sure why they haven't. So I, I maybe, maybe if you know more about that, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe I'm not the only one who doesn't. Maybe you could tell me and our listeners. Yeah, and, and, and they, they, they haven't. In fact, at the press conference, I think it was yesterday, the White House press secretary sort of sidestepped all the questions about directly uh, uh, the comparisons to the Fogel case. Now, they did uh, earlier on, I think this summer, they did ask Russia to release Fogel on humanitarian grounds, but they have been strangely silent in response to why they felt that the Griner case was an injustice, which I agree it was, but why the Fogel case is different. And it's just in absence of any other any other information from the State Department, it's hard. I think it's understandable for people to say, well, Look at you have a you have a wealthy connected celebrity, and then you have a history teacher from Pittsburgh, and well, of course, wealthy connected celebrities always seem to be able to jump the line, and that that I that's that's what I'm left with because the State Department says they won't comment, the White House says they won't comment because of security issues and safety issues, and maybe that's the case, or maybe it's just a convenient cover for saying like, hey, it looked. Pol- politically better for us to free this person who a lot of folks care about as opposed to this guy who no one even hardly knows about. Yeah, I, I, I understand that issue now. I mean, I, I guess, you know, we, we um, again, I don't know that anybody knows that the State Department isn't working to get this guy mm-hmm. out. You know, they're, they're not commenting about it. And I, I think there's a lot of people who, you know, anytime Biden does anything, there's people that want to find a, a way to, you know, criticize him for that. And so, you know, this this seems like maybe the wedge into criticizing this deal. But I still think that the swap for Brittany Griner, it's better that he did it than that he not do it. Right. I mean, if, if we have a binary choice here, yeah. um, he can yeah. he can swap out for, for this one celebrity or he could not swap out for this one celebrity. Um, I think it's better to do it, even if there's another person similarly situated that he wasn't also able to swap out for. And, and I think it doesn't. Um, it doesn't uh, end end any any um, uh, behind the scenes efforts that might be being made, and I and I also think about it if you if the administration is making efforts to get Mark Fogel out, it's probably necessary that they be as tight lipped about it as they are because the more they sort of publicly say they're trying to do it, the more that um, it increases the the price that uh, Putin can uh, extract for it because sure. he gets the ability to make the um, administration um, you know kind of publicly fail. You know, so I think I think it's absolutely necessary to keep quiet about it if if they're if they're working on it. Yeah, and I, and I agree that the difficulty here, of course, is there is an awful lot that we don't know. And and I would agree with you that if it's a case where Putin said, "Hey, listen, it's it's uh it's Griner for Bout, and that's the only deal that we're willing to consider." Well, yes, I certainly wouldn't want the Biden administration or any administration to say, "No, we're holding out for this guy who's been here longer." So. So, yeah, under those, if it were a binary choice, definitely that's I, I certainly agree with that. I mean, there, there's also the issue of, well, is it good policy in general to do prisoner swaps? And I think while many administrations in the past have said, well, we don't negotiate with well, with terrorism, I would argue that Russia is a terrorist state. That's another question. But but 
I get that in practice, it's just simply not something we can afford not to do when we have so many way of potential of, of, of bringing home. Right. I mean, it's literally the way we brought home all the yeah. Iranian hostages exactly. in uh, 1980. Yeah. I mean, there's right. There's a, such a compelling uh, humanitarian case to do some kind of negotiating. And also, I think even though, you know, a lot of people have noted and I won't disagree you know, that that we're giving them back a, a much more um, serious criminal and a much more person who's more high value to Putin um, th- than what we're getting back. You know, I, I think that it's possible for one side to get the better end of a deal at the same time that the deal is a win-win for both sides. Yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of like that every single time I go, you know, buy some ice cream, really. You know, I think like Raiders <laughs> gets a lot more out of that deal than I do, but it's still, it's yeah. still, it's still a win-win. You yeah. know? So, <laughs> and, and, and honestly, I'm happy I'm okay with giving Russia a propaganda victory that's not really a substantive win if it means bringing an American back home. Yeah, me too. So, all right. Well, let's move on to the domestic front. Uh, some other late-breaking news. Earlier today, we're recording this uh, late Friday morning. Uh, earlier today, Arizona Senator Kristen Cinema announced she was leaving the Democratic Party and becoming an independent. And in an op-ed that appeared in the Arizona Republic, Cinema wrote that she had promised Arizona voters that she'd be independent when she was elected into the Senate in 2018, that she's worked with both parties, and that she has, in her words, joined a growing number of Arizonans who reject party politics by declaring my independence from the broken partisan system in Washington. Now, Sinema said that she'll keep her Democratic Party committee positions and she won't caucus with the GOP. So my take is that this is unlikely to have any significant, at least short term policy ramifications, although the media is calling it an earthquake and other headline clickbaity kind of things like that. I don't know. Ken, what do you think? Yeah, I agree 100 percent. The implications are all only about the 2024 elections, but. In the immediate run, you know, what it actually does is continue a, a kind of peculiar aspect of the status quo that ever since the 2020 elections, there have been more Republican senators than Democratic senators in the Senate, but yet um, the Democrats have had the majority. And, uh, you know, because Sanders and, and uh, King are independent already, right? So we, we, you know, we were talking about the last Senate. Most people called it a 50-50 Senate, but it was actually a 50-48 yep. Senate where with two independents. And now- you know, it looked like maybe the Dems were going to tie that up at 49-49, but get the advantage because the two independents would caucus with them. Um, I think now you could say, well, the Republicans actually have 49-48, but yet the Dems still have the majority because they have the three independents. So I, I feel like there's literally no impact in present um, uh, on, on present functioning of the Senate. Um, nobody even thinks about uh, Sanders or King as anything other than Democrats in terms of the functioning of the Senate. And they are independents. And I think that's just the category that uh, cinema has moved herself into. Yeah. You know, I agree. And I think, though, it's maybe smart politically for cinema. She's, you know, looking ahead to a primary challenge in, in 2024. And I can see where she'd say, well, I don't see how I win in a Democratic primary. And so I, I, I can't win in a Republican primary. And if she wants to get reelected, maybe she thinks her best chance is to run as an independent hope that the Democrats and Republicans split enough of the vote so she comes out on top. And it's better to do that now than right before the 2024 primary season. I think it seems less kind of craven and calculated and that sort of thing and kind of gives voters a little more 
time to sort of adjust to that reality. So politically, I think it it might be the smartest move for cinema if she actually wants to keep her seat. Um, yeah, I mean, I actually, <laughs> I think she may be thinking that way, but I would put that down to her insane uh, narcissism and magical <laughs> thinking. Um, I, I think there, there's no chance that she can get reelected in, in 2024 um, under any circumstances. And, you know, she may have already seen that she can't get uh, renominated as a Democrat and that she can't get nominated as a Republican, as you just said. And I think she may believe, therefore, that her path to keeping the seat is as an independent. Um, I, I don't believe that's a path to keeping the seat either. I don't think she'll have a, a lot of juice for that run. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's the, the problem she has in Arizona is that the, 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 the there's a lot of Republicans in Arizona who really do want to run and they're not going to clear a path for her and let her run as an independent and only put in a token, um, you know, Republican uh, candidate. There, there's going to be a real Republican candidate who's really running. And so she's not going to get enough Republican votes or Democratic votes to be viable. Her Senate career is over. But I, I think the two reasons, the two things she gets out of this, one one is the um, that she can keep this magical thinking alive that she will uh, um, that she will uh, uh, run in 24. But the other is that um, she is such an extreme narcissist that I think the main benefit she gets out of it is she's kind of being yeah. talked about today, which she wouldn't otherwise. Yeah. And she's, in fact, being talked about as playing some kind of kingmaking role, um, which she wouldn't be otherwise. And I think it, it's just her unbelievable narcissism. That's the primary driver of all this. She, she, she is a she is a fascinating character. I mean, here's someone who's right. She's she's raised a Mormon. Uh, then she leaves the church, starts to identify as bisexual, and early on in his career, she calls herself a Prada socialist. And now she's just I mean, she's just all over the map. And and, and uh, I think yeah, that more than maybe more than the usual amount of narcissism, even for a United States senator, which is you know saying uh, quite a lot. I, I would say, yeah. but I will say, I think that's the tick. That's the formula for understanding everything you need to know about Kristen cinema. Well, but I will say kind of in her defense in a way, I mean, on one hand you can say, well, you know, she's voted with the administration less often than all, but four Democrats in the Senate. Uh, but if you take a look at where Arizona is uh, electorally, and there's a, there's a metric that actually 538 uses called Biden plus minus, which is basically, the difference between a senator's predicted votes and their actual support for the administration based on Biden's margin in 2020. And she's she's way up there, actually. And so you could make the case that actually Kristen Sinema has been supporting the administration more than might be strictly good for her electorally. That's about the strongest case I'm going to make for Kristen Cinema, but I thought I would throw that out there since we've been more or less kind of bashing her throughout the segment here. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'll even pick a bone with that because, uh, yeah, she has been supporting the administration more, much more often than not, but still I'd say not even as much as Mark Kelly. And Mark Kelly, I think, is stronger electorally than she is. So I don't, I, I you know, Arizona is a purple state, but one of the best paths for a Democrat to win there is to consolidate the support of all the Democrats who are there. Yep. And that's that's what Kelly has really done. Yeah. And Kelly has uh, been slightly more supportive. You're right. Of the of the administration and obviously the same the same states so the same political environment. And he's he's much less of a, a insane narcissist, I guess you could say, certainly than cinema. So so your your prediction then is that cinema is cinema is gone in, in 2024 and that while this may be a slim path, it's pretty much uh, uh, unlikely for her to uh, have any kind of realistic shot. 
Yeah, that's my prediction. I've actually made that prediction on the politics guys before, even even before she um, announced that she was going to go independent. I, I think she has no path to reelection. Yeah. And and I think she's also suggested or there have been suggestions. People have asked her about, uh, of all things, she'll like this, the, the presidency. Right. And she said she has no plans or anything like that. But now if you take insane narcissism to the next level, you could see where someone in her position would say, well, maybe in 2028, uh, you know, I might have a, I might have a shot as kind of the great independent hope, that sort of thing. Or would that be too out there even for Christian cinema? I don't know. Uh, maybe we'll find out. You know, she might believe it um, in the same kind of way that I think Liz Cheney believes that she could end up being a Republican right. presidential yeah. nominee. But but I, but I think, I, you know, I think Liz Cheney's thinking is more realistic than Christian cinema's because, you know, I don't think Trumpism will completely blow over. But but if Trumpism completely blows over, then um, Liz Cheney will have a shot to be the Republican nominee. But I, I don't see what possible change like that you could say if this would happen, then 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 Kristen Sinema would have a shot. Yeah, yeah, I I, I think you're right. I, I'm inclined to believe that that her her career is her career as a a, a senator is probably uh, nearing its end. We'll see. All right. Uh, let's see here. Well, you know, let's let's stick with the Senate, Ken, and talk a little bit about how Senate Democrats this week, where they got a little bit of breathing room on Tuesday. Incumbent Raphael Warnock beats Republican challenger Herschel Walker, 51.4 to 48.6 percent. And uh, oh, by the way, if you're keeping track at home, Warnock's win means that every single Senate incumbent running for reelection one and this is as far as i can tell the first time this has happened since voters have begun directly electing senators so uh, uh kind of a big first and it's also of course the last in a series of pretty high profile trump endorsees who've lost races that i think you could argue would have been far more winnable for um less i'll call them polarizing nominees so ken uh, what how much do you think warnock's win matters in a in a real sense well, you know, I would think about um, both. We were just talking about Kelly as well. I would think about both Warnock and Kelly as illustrative of the extreme importance of candidate quality. You know, I, I think both Georgia and um, uh, Arizona um, were, were close enough and are close enough. I, I would not call them Democratic states, um, but yet Democrats won in both of those states. And I think in, in both cases, it really was the disparity in candidate quality. And, and Warnock just did a, a terrific job, and uh, uh, I think that's why he was able to win in what I would say still looks like a Republican state. I mean, Kemp won the governor's uh, race, with, you know, running away with it. It wasn't even close. And, uh, um, and, and yet Warnock has now won, you know, four times if you th in, in just a few years, if you count that he was uh, first past the post in both the uh, November elections as well as winning both the runoff elections. So um, to me, the big message there is candidate quality matters. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. And Mitch McConnell has been saying that uh, for, for quite a while and to the derision of, of Donald Trump initially. But, you know, I can certainly envision uh, a scenario in which the, the Republicans ended up with, you know, 54, 53, 54 seats in the Senate in uh, January of 2023, looking forward to potentially a filibuster proof majority and in uh, you know 2025 and none of that's going to happen thanks to largely donald trump so thank you donald trump but also thanks to the republican electorate because sure. the, the, the low quality of the candidates they got 
actually does reflect the, the the voters that vote for those low quality of candidates in their primaries. It wasn't wasn't like the, it was just stolen, you know, from the, the real Republican primary voters. I mean, these were reflective of the real Republican primary right, voters. Right. And, and in a real sense, and I think this is something you pointed out a little while back on the show, it matters for, for one thing, because uh, the, the fifth, well, Cinema will probably end up caucusing with the Democrats. So that that 51 to 49 effective margin means that Democrats have a majority on every committee, which means that they have subpoena power. And that is that could be potentially a big deal, as well as that means they also get a larger share of the budget. Uh, so that's a that's a smaller thing, but still not entirely insignificant. And that's something that you think that subpoena power might potentially come into play in the 118th Congress. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think the, the the two biggest practical impacts of having 51 versus 50, the main one is the, the subpoena power, um, which was very difficult for committees to wield when they were evenly divided. There was there were very complex procedures for, for getting to do that. And, it, and it, there was a lot of opportunities for the Republicans to derail it. The, the, the other one is um, appointments that similarly, um, although the, the, the if a committee split on a, recommending a, a nominee for a, a floor vote, there were mechanisms to, to you know, dislodge the, uh, the, 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 the matter from the committee and bring it to the floor. But those were slow and cumbersome methods. But I think now, you know, the, there will be much more streamlined process because the committees are all going to have one more Democrat than Republican. Um, that President Biden's nominees, both for ju- judicial positions and for executive positions, are going to sail right to the floor and they're not filibusterable on the floor. So I, I'm optimistic that he'll be able to fill all the judicial vacancies and that there will be zero judicial vacancies by the time his term ends in um, the end of 2024. So um, that's the main significance. I think from a legislative standpoint, it make a lot less difference. Yeah. Did you think that, I, I mean, I agree in terms of the ease, a greater ease of filling those uh, judicial vacancies, especially, do you think that having that one extra vote, do you think that matters in terms of substantively the, the sort of judges Joe Biden will be able to get approved by the Senate or really not that much in any real sense? Not that much in any real sense for a couple of reasons. I think, um, first of all, Biden himself um, is not trying to appoint uh, far left judges. I think he's trying to, uh, you know, appoint the kind of judges with conventionally excellent credentials. He really won't find too many variances from that. Um, and second of all, of course, you know, Manchin could still vote no on anybody. and. Uh, you know, Manchin has voted no on a couple of um, executive nominations in the, in the first in the in the first two years of Biden's presidency. I don't think he's voted no on any judges, but um, but you know, I, I think he does have some need to establish some independence from Biden. So it won't be great if they can't keep all fifty-one senators on board. The, the idea that they have one to lose is formally true, but I think they're not looking to lose that one. I think they're they're planning to keep all the, all those votes on board. Yeah, that's that's my take as well. All right. Well, before we get into Donald Trump's very bad week or fairly bad week, I guess, in a little bit more detail, we will just take a quick break and then be right back. Okay, Ken. So, you know, it was by any standard, I think it was kind of a rough week for Donald Trump. I mean, not only does his Georgia Senate candidate lose, but two subsidiaries of the Trump organization were convicted of multiple crimes, including tax fraud, falsifying business records, and conspiracy. And these charges relate to the company uh, compensating executives 
off the books in order in various ways in order to evade taxes. Now, Donald Trump himself was not charged, but the organization is now subject to a fine of up to one point six million dollars at sentencing, which will be coming in the next few weeks, I think. And of course, one point six million it would be a lot to me. I'd be in trouble, but it doesn't really amount to that much for the Trump organization. But maybe of more significance to Donald Trump personally is that ongoing investigation by special counsel Jack Smith. And this week it was reported that Smith has sent subpoenas to election officials in Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin. Those, of course, are three closely contested states in 2020, and they played an important role in Trump's attempts to reverse the result of the 2020 presidential election. So, so Ken, I thought we could start with those Trump organization convictions. I mean, uh, uh, what do you think about them? How big of a deal do you see those as being? I think the crimes that the Trump organization uh, was convicted of are pretty minor. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm even open to the idea that, you know, other, other New York corporations that committed similar uh, violations of, of law, you know, might not find themselves being criminally prosecuted for it. Although also, it's probably also the case that um, those other organizations, if, if they were called on it or indicted for it, they would move faster to you know, pay up the, the unpaid taxes yeah. and not go to the criminal trial. So, um, you know, I, I think part of the reason we're seeing a criminal trial is there was more scrutiny into Trump organization. But part is that, when, you know, when, when the when the um, irregularities were revealed, he, he would not do a single thing to try to settle the matter. Um, but, you know, I, I think it is somewhat significant. You know, the fact that he's uh, the Trump organization. Uh, has been convicted um, does leave open the possibility that he could be personally indicted because now you have, you know, Alan Weisselbach was convicted. The organization was convicted. It certainly suggests that Trump personally um, had knowledge of the the scheme and and may have ordered the scheme because it, you know, after all, if if Weisselbach didn't do it, if, if Weisselbach did it all himself, then there'd be no basis to convict the organization. So, so convicting the organization implies other other people in the organization uh, were, were in on it. So, I think that does open a little bit of jeopardy for Trump, um, and you know, it, it does also open some additional room for penalties. Not only the fines, but corporations that commit crimes can can lose certain privileges going forward. Um, you know, even their right to operate as a, as a New York corporation. So, um, you know, that might not be a huge setback for him, but it would be another day that uh, he'd be in the headlines if he if, if the Trump organization lost its its. It's, its status as a New York corporation. So little things like that. But I think the biggest significance, of course, is political. And it's part of a week where, you know, he was a little bit humiliated by uh, Herschel Walker losing in Georgia. He was a little bit humiliated by the blowback from his uh, his dinner with Kanye and, uh, and, and the white supremacist uh, Nick uh, Fuentes. Um, and it does feel like the independent council's uh, net is closing. So, or the special council, not the independent council. So, so all you know, all of those things are happening at once. And I think that 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 adds up to a a a, a, a picture of Trump in political and legal jeopardy. And that that that, that all the dots that are forming that picture you know, of which the convictions are one, I think that the significance is mainly political. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, and Jay has long said that his his vision, his hope, I think, is that this aura of Trump being a winner after, after loss, after loss, after loss, is just going to basically fall away and, and, and he'll lose enough of his support so that uh, at least if even if uh, he, he can still make a run, he just won't have enough support to make a successful run. And and uh, I, I think there's maybe something to that. But I'm 
I am hesitant to to rule Donald Trump and his supporters out at this point, just because I was, as I've said before, I was burned so badly in 2016 on that. So I'm not going to I'm not going to say that Donald Trump is done at this point. But I did want to ask you about those Smith subpoenas, because I think on one one hand, you could say, well, maybe the media is just making too much of what could be kind of a routine request for information. I mean, given the nature of the investigations he was charged with conducting. Well, if that's the position I'm in, the first thing I do is subpoena those officials for information. So a subpoena in and of itself doesn't really tell us much of anything, at least in terms of culpability, right? Well, no, right. It doesn't tell us that there is culpability, but it, it you know, we know there's some culpability. So, you know, we some some things we already know quite well. We we know that Trump himself uh, called um, the, the Secretary of State of Georgia. Um, and 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 the, and the council for the secretary of state of Georgia and tried to influence them to um, uh, find uh, twelve thousand votes. We know that people affiliated with Trump tried to organize, particularly John Eastman, tried to organize a, a scheme to send fake electors to the electoral college fraudulently. So you know we know all these things. So in, in that context, you know we don't know exactly about all the communications between the Trump organization and the county officials. But these would be additional pieces of evidence of crimes, you know, where the broad outlines are, are already well known. So in that context, I, I would say we know a little more than just that it doesn't mean anything. I think it means something. I think it means that the Justice Department, um, uh, including Jack Smith, you know, have concluded that crimes were committed and they're trying to dot all their t- dot all their I's and, and cross all their T's in terms of collecting all the evidence of it. I mean, you know, in, in the past, when Jay and I've talked about this, he suggested that that Donald Trump may have, like you mentioned, the finding, whatever, 12,000 more votes, that that is not necessarily a sign of some sort of criminal intent. If he, in fact, legitimately believed that there were 12,000 uncounted votes for him and he wasn't asking that those votes be pulled out of the ether, just that they be found, that they were already there. And it's kind of a larger narrative. And that and I've heard this from Jay and from other folks on the right saying that, well, Donald Trump's not guilty of committing crimes because he legitimately believes that the election was stolen and that his efforts and that the efforts of people like Eastman were not illegal. They were just legitimate attempts to overturn, to, to correct a grave injustice. And I wanted to get your your, your take on that. Well, I think what you're really asking only, only goes to proof. I mean, I believe that he knew that it was illegitimate and, and therefore it was a crime. Now, so I think what, and I'm sure the Justice Department believes that too. So, so the, the question isn't, um, you know, I think if you're looking at it from an investigation standpoint, the question isn't, you know, is that possible? I think they know and I know and you know, no, that's not possible. The, 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 the question is, can, can we prove that that's not possible? And that's why they need to collect all the evidence. But certainly we heard enough during the public January 6th hearings um, from a lot of people that were working on Trump's election team that they kept telling him again and again and again that the, the very um, allegations of fraud that he was raising were bogus. There was no effort, evidence for it. You know, B- Bill Barr told him that, um, you know, his, his uh, Pat Cipollone told him that. You know, everybody um, who worked for him, who was part of his administration, who looked into his the fraud claims, told him they weren't true. And that's and also um, uh, uh, the the Georgia Secretary of State and the Council for the Georgia Secretary of State and the Georgia Governor, you know, all gave him very specific responses to his his specific allegations of fraud in Georgia. They they told him it wasn't true. He had no basis for believing it was true. Nobody credible told him that it was true. 
he just wanted to believe it was true. And and that that isn't a defense. So I think I think everybody who's who's being realistic about this knows that the question isn't whether he believed that bullshit or not. The the question is can can it be proved? That he didn't believe it, and and that's why they're chasing after right. the proof now. Got you. So uh, that's that that helps to clarify things. So at some point, you're saying that simply just stating that I refuse to believe anything that was told to me except what I wanted to believe. That is that is not a, unless you're bringing in some kind of weird diminished capacity or some kind of defense that that just is not a that is not a, a legitimate legal defense, basically. Right. I mean, to say I tried to steal the outcome of an election because I simply refuse to believe that I lost. Yeah, that that would not be a basis for trying to steal the outcome of an election. Gotcha. Okay. So in terms of I was thinking about potential charges, right? Um, And it seems to me it ranges all the way from uh, seditious conspiracy, insurrection, witness tampering, I don't know, obstruction of official proceedings. I think even I didn't realize this was a potential charge conspiracy to defraud the United States, because apparently uh, uh, from a precedence like around the century old, I guess Chief Justice Taft has said that, well, the court said that, well, it's not just financially defrauding, but if you try to interfere with some kind of lawful governmental function through, I like this phrase, deceit, craft, or trickery, and that's not okay as well as a violation of that. So, I mean, is there anything on that laundry list that, I, that you think I'm missing or things that are more or less likely, would you say, based on what we know now? You know, I have to confess again, I, I should have looked into this better before today's show. But, you know, when, when these issues came up back during the election a year and a half ago, I, I made a list of all the relevant statutes. But I, I don't have it all in my head sure. and I don't have it in front of me right now. But there, I think you covered the, the ground for sure that, it, you know, that there's I mean, trying to interfere with official proceedings, particularly with um, election counts, is, is a serious federal crime. And I think all these other ones that you mentioned are also potential things he could be charged with. There there are a number of statutes that um, Trump's conduct, uh, I will say, did violate. Um, You know, probably a more prudent way would be say, you know, appears to have violated. Um, And and I don't I don't I don't think that there will be problems finding uh, counts that he could be charged with, um, you know, once there's enough evidence to show that he tried uh, through various schemes ranging from submitting false electors to um, uh, pressuring state officials to uh, sending mobs to attack the Capitol and, and interfere with the vote count um, that, that he that he tried to uh, um, steal the steal an election that he had lost. Do you think so? I it, I assume you believe that there will be probably multiple indictments. Is that right? Yeah, I don't see any other reason that Garland would have appointed Jack Smith. I mean, I, I don't think he needed to appoint Jack Smith, but I, I don't think it hurts either. But I think if Garland didn't believe that there's going to be an indictment, then what's the point of uh, appointing Jack Smith? He doesn't need a, a special counsel to not indict somebody. Do you think, I mean, my my view is that not only would he not have appointed a special counsel if he didn't think there would be indictments, but also that there would be significant indictments. Because honestly, I feel like if the only indictment ends up being about the documents thing, I, that that to me... That, that might be technically a legal victory, but it seems like not necessarily the kind of political result I think a lot of people would want and, and would actually potentially backfire. Well, what do you think? Yeah, I think Garland does hope to bring charges um, related to January 6th. You know, he um, you know, he he hasn't brought them yet, which must mean that he, he doesn't think they have all the evidence yet. And the investigation is continuing. And 
I think even as late as Wednesday, um, Michigan Secretary of State uh, Jocelyn Benson uh, confirmed that that her office. So this is not just a county level. This is state secretary of state uh, received a subpoena from Jack Smith about communications with the Trump campaign during the uh, 2020 election. So the, the investigation and the, the evidence gathering is continuing. But I think that Garland's hope is to you know get enough evidence to to legitimately support you know the, the maximum charges that can be brought. And to do it soon enough so that it doesn't get embroiled in the 2024 campaign. Yeah, I mean, I, I think all, you know, all of calendar year 2023 will be fair game for that. Yeah. I, you know, I know Trump, Trump thought that, you know, if he announces now that he's a candidate, that that's somehow going to mean that nobody can indict him in 2023. But I, I don't think Garland cares about that at all. You know, I, th- I think probably we're talking about after the new year into 24 that that would start to become an issue. Yeah. And so do you do you see a reasonable possibility that Donald Trump is not just indicted, but convicted? I mean, is that it, I, it's hard for me to I don't know. He's been such a slippery character for so long. But what do you think? Yeah, I, I think if he's indicted, he'll be convicted because I, I think uh, Garland is pretty prudent. And I think he wouldn't bring the indictment if right. he thought there was much of a chance there wouldn't be a conviction. I think it's much more likely that we won't see an indictment than that we will gotcha. see an indictment, but then see an acquittal. And, and you know, think about this. Um, the, the, the Trump Organization case in New York, which, you know, was, I would say, less of a big deal by far than any of the election related cases. You know, they got indictment. They got conviction on all 17 counts from a New York jury. And you might say, well, New York juries hate Trump, but actually D.C. juries hate Trump, too. And, uh, you know, that that's where that's where these cases will most likely be. So um, I, I don't think it's impossible. And, and I think, you know, in the earlier cases against people like Manafort, you know, before he got pardoned, you know, they, they got convictions out of juries related to some of the same conduct. So. So, yeah, we could we could potentially be seeing, I don't know, if a Donald Trump uh, convicted and behind bars or anything like that. It's it's uh, it's a scenario I, I have trouble envisioning. But, uh, <laughs> but I know it's a scenario that a lot on the left are kind of eagerly looking for. But uh, I will I will believe it. Uh, I will believe it when I see it. I, I still think that what's going to happen uh, is that uh, if at best there will be. A conviction on the uh, uh, on the documents charges, but I would be surprised if there's actually a conviction on anything related to January sixth. And so I think in the end, this this ends up helping Donald Trump politically. But uh, maybe that's just because I am just become so pessimistic about uh, the state of American politics. I don't know. But all right. So you you actually believe there will be an indictment, but there will be an acquittal. I believe there will be an indictment and a conviction on the documents charges. That to me seems to be pretty straightforward. It's like Donald Trump practically gifted uh, the DOJ with that one. But on the January 6th stuff, I think it's just I think it's going to be too difficult to prove. And I just see him getting out of that. So, yeah, that's my take. Getting out of that by not being indicted or by being indicted? No, by, by being, being indicted. But by not being by not being convicted, and I think that's going to be worse than not being indicted in the first place for the reasons that you know you talked about. So yeah, I don't, I don't. Yeah, think- yeah I, I will say I don't think that'll happen. I, I think there's much more of a chance he'll never be indicted. I I think Garland does not want an acquittal, and he will stop there from being an hmm. indictment unless it's really clear they'll get an acquittal. Maybe you're right because the evidence I mean, then would have to be really strong. Yeah. yeah, the evidence sure. would have to be really strong. I, I think Garland's not going to let the case move forward unless it's an open and shut case. 
And so you think sometime, obviously sometime in, in the coming year, we will see any indictments probably come down, I would imagine. So depending on how quickly or slowly this moves, especially if Garland wants to make, or sorry, if, if Smith wants to make sure that all of the uh, I's, are, I's are dotted and T's are crossed on this, we could potentially be seeing a, a, the actual criminal case start or be uh, going on in in 2024 during the presidential year? Yeah, I think it could. Um, I think it would have to start, you know, pretty early in the presidential year. And, um, you know, and if, it, if, if Trump's able to, you know, he is pretty good at introducing delay. I think if he's able to delay it, you know, into the spring, if the primaries start and he's a candidate, um, I think it'll end up getting delayed until after the election in November. But um, but if he's already if yeah, but I otherwise, you know, maybe that maybe that does make me think they need to speed up the timeline for the indictment a little bit more, because otherwise I think there is a chance of an indictment followed by a postponement of the trial. Yeah, it should be a very interesting period, to say the least. All right. Well, let's stick with the. Uh, domestic politics and kind of presidential election sort of stuff, uh, you know, for, well, I guess half a century now, the presidential primary season has been kicked off with the Iowa caucuses. But that's going to be changing, at least for the Democratic Party in 2024, because on the recommendation of President Biden, the DNC's Rules and Bylaws Committee has agreed to reorder their primaries with South Carolina replacing Iowa as a kind of first in the nation. Now, formal approval of this won't come until early next year, and states will also have to adjust their primary dates to correspond with this new ordering, which brings a wrinkle into this. But the way the order will be, at least if the DNC's uh, uh, Rules and Bylaws Committee has its way, is South Carolina on February 3rd, followed by Nevada and New Hampshire three days later, Georgia on February 13th, and Michigan on February 27th. And, you know, this has been a change that a lot of Democrats have been arguing for, well, for years now, in kind of an attempt to bring more diversity to the early stages of the nominating process. And in the letter that Biden wrote to the Rules and Bylaws Committee, he said, for decades, black voters in particular have been the backbone of the Democratic Party, but have been pushed to the back of the early primary process. We rely on these voters in elections, but have not recognized their importance in our nominating calendar. It's time to stop taking these voters for granted and time to give them a louder and earlier voice in the process. And so, now, South Carolina, of course, which followed Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada in 2020, they gave a big boost to Biden's presidential campaign. If folks recall, he uh, finished in fourth, in fourth place in Iowa. I believe it was fifth in New Hampshire, but he won pretty convincingly in South Carolina and then kind of took off from there. And now the problem is, of course, we don't know how this is going to shake out at the state level because each state sets its own date for primary elections, and New Hampshire and Iowa have state laws requiring that they start the process. And then there's the complication that, well, the RNC voted to continue its current order, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, which is the same as 2020. And so, in theory, state parties and states that don't change their primary dates can run their own nominating contests, but it's hard to see that happening in practice because they wouldn't get state funding, the logistical support to run those elections. And I don't really see that as, as happening. So uh, this is still a little unclear as to how this is all going to work out. But just in general, Ken, what do you think about the change to the to the calendar that Democrats are seem to want to go forward with? 
I think the principle of making the change is correct. Um, I'm not sure I agree with their execution of it. So um, it, it seems to me that there's no good reason for Iowa to to set uh, go first in a um, Democratic nominating process. It, it, it as has been pointed out, not only is it a non-representative state in terms of um, who who the voters there are, very you know it's a very white state, and the Democratic Party now is you know very has very large minority presence. But also, it's a it's a state that's going to go Republican. It's not you know once upon a time it was a real purple state, but it's not anymore. So you've got kind of a small non-representative group of mostly older white Democratic voters um, who may not be reflective of the Democratic electorate nationwide, you know, generally, generally lately picking candidates who don't wind up being the nominee. So I think that's got to go. On the other hand, um, I don't think South Carolina is the right pick. Uh, You know, I think it's being picked primarily because it was the state that saved President Biden. And um, so he feels a debt to it and that um, uh, Clyburn has a lot of influence and he wanted it. But I think North Carolina or Georgia would be much more sensible than South Carolina, because I, I think that it's um, you actually want to do this in a purple state. Like you, you want to let the you want to let the Democrats uh, in a state that could determine the election pick uh, which candidate they want to be the Democratic nominee. And South Carolina is not such a state and its neighbor to the north and to the south. But both are. Yeah. I mean, Georgia does go 10 days, only 10 days later. Right. So I think maybe you can make the argument that, well, it's yeah, certainly not first, but they're pretty far up the calendar. And so they'll still be able to exercise more influence than they would have otherwise. But that you say that's maybe not not enough. No, I think that's OK. So maybe if Georgia is going to go 10 days later on Super Tuesday, that's fine. But I, why not North Carolina? Why not Virginia? You know, I, I think there's. There's states that provide the same um, demographic uh, diversity that that South Carolina provides, but that actually we would really want to have a bigger role in the nominating process because we want candidates that can win in those states in November. You know, states where it's possible but not a sure thing that a Democrat could win in November. I'd like to see those states playing the biggest role in the process. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. And now one argument that well, folks from Iowa and New Hampshire have been making forever is that the reason they should go first, even though they, they certainly can't argue that they're representative of you know America as a whole, is that this gives the chance to kind of see that retail politics one-to-one sort of thing. And this is why small states should go first, because they can really get the, get the measure of the person, right? And that, that has some sort of, some sort of special meaning and ties to our past and all this stuff. What, what do you think about those arguments? You know, I, I, I don't disagree with them. I just think they may not be as important as other arguments anymore. I mean, I actually think it's, it's a correct argument to say it's better to start in a smaller state because money will have less of an influence there. That it's whoever, you know, whoever coming in with a big monetary advantage um, can give um, a big advantage in a big state because you need to rely on advertising to get the word out. Whereas in a smaller state, um, it's possible to just get out and, and meet voters. So I, I agree with that. And I even agree in New Hampshire's case that it's it's a purple enough state that it, it probably should have an early role in the process. It's one of those states that the Dems ideally you know, would like to win and are not guaranteed to win, although they have been winning it. But um, but I, yeah, I just think the, 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 that as correct as I think those arguments are, I think they're outweighed by the idea that we need to win certain swing states and therefore we need to tailor the candidates um, to those swing states. We need the, the candidates that will do well in those swing states because 
ultimately winning the election is the most important thing. And, you know, some some folks would say, well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And sure, you know, Joe Biden struggled in those first two states. But, hey, it worked out in the end. Right. South Carolina did, in fact, save him and he was elected. So why do all this and upset so many people? I mean, is this more trouble than what it's worth? And there's I think there's something to that argument. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually usually a believer in, in if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I'm not going to say it's hugely broke right now, but I would just say I think there's actually, you know, more compelling reasons to switch than to stay. I, I wouldn't say the current system is broken, but I would say it seems to me that the current system would be improved if it focused more on um, bringing the swing states in early. Now, I know South Carolina doesn't completely do that, um, but uh, but I think the benefits of that would 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 be um, Far enough in excess of the detriments that I that I, I I don't I don't think that the current system has to be completely broken in order to think it could be improved. Yeah, and of course there's an important difference between just in general how Democrats and the Republicans conduct their system of primaries because even though traditionally they're held on the same day in each state, Democrats award their presidential delegates. Uh, broadly proportionately to vote totals, whereas Republicans have much more of a winner take all sort of sort of system. And there are uh, uh, kind of pros and cons for that. The, the, the Republicans definitely wanted a system that could kind of give them a front runner very quickly to have that momentum. And some would argue that it kind of uh, backfired on them in 2016. But well, what do you think about those differences between, I mean, do, do you see, do you think that the way the Democrats do it is a, is a better way, not necessarily fairer or more democratic, that's one thing, but actually results in the sort of candidate that has a better chance of winning in the general election? It seems to me that it does. I mean, I, I think that um, Biden, I believe, was the most electable candidate in um, in 2020. And, you know, he wasn't even my candidate in the primaries, but I, I think the system gave a good result. I think in Obama's case, it's obvious what a good result the system gave. And, you know, I don't, I, you know, maybe maybe Hillary Clinton, you know, I mean, maybe maybe you could say, well, she didn't win and she came through that system. But it, actually, she did win. I mean, she got three million more votes than than Trump. Um, and, uh, um, and, and I, I don't know who could have been more electable than her in, in that year. So I, I think the system's been working fine in terms of how the Dems allocate the electoral votes. And I, and I would think plus as an advantage, I, I believe it's kind of more representative and more democratic in, in a real sense. And so there's that going for it too, you know, which is nice, I think. So, all right. Well, you know, before we, uh, before we go, I, always enjoy doing recommendations, Ken, because you're always reading or listening to or watching something that I invariably put on my list. It's sometimes true with Jay, but Jay, Jay is sometimes a little more highbrow for me, and I can't quite get into some of the stuff he asked, but, but you always have, uh, like, I think, more approachable picks as far as I'm concerned. So <laughs> so what, what, what do you have for us this week, or for me at least? You know? oh, sure. Uh, you know, I think with Trey, I usually do this in the in the bonus show, don't we? But I'll do it in the regular show. Um, now, this is actually something I invited you to um, join me at, Michael, and you you declined, but uh, I'll, I'll re re reopen it. So um, you know how much I love Neil Young. And uh, Neil Young has been, you know, over the course of his whole entire career, he would film quite a lot. And, you know, under the theory that someday he would do something with that film. And uh, one thing that he just got around to doing was um, 50 years ago, uh, when he filmed, when he recorded the album Harvest, which I believe is his most popular album ever, um, he had a couple uh, uh, cameramen with 16 millimeter handheld film cameras 
filming pretty much everything, every rehearsal, every recording session, just everything. And uh, and that album was recorded in um, in his on his ranch in California, and also in a Nashville studio and in a New York City studio, and in London with the London Symphony Orchestra for part of it. And all of that stuff was was filmed. And uh, to, to and then he just sat on the footage for fifty years. And now um, to celebrate the fiftieth anniversary of Neil Young's great album Harvest, he just released this movie called Harvest Time, where he uh, edited together um, all that footage. And I, I went to see it the other day. And it was it was so fantastic. There's so many revelations in it. You know, if you're a Neil Young fan, you know, there's I can't even think of anything more exciting than watching the moment where uh, Neil Young uh, is lying on his back with a banjo composing the song that became Old Man. Oh, wow. And uh, you get to see a lot of you get to see a lot of stuff like that in the Harvest Time movie. That is that sounds really and, and Neil Young is is a. It's, it's a fascinating guy, right? Then there was a thing, I think, earlier, was it this year, where uh, he asked Spotify to remove his music because of a Joe Rogan thing or something. And and he's he's just a – he just strikes me as being such a iconoclastic, idiosyncratic kind of guy as opposed – as in addition to being clearly a, a, a great musician, you know? So I think he's an interesting character. Yeah, so that's my pick. Okay. Uh, you know, I'll I'll go with something. Well, I I just just a couple of days ago I watched a, a movie uh, just came out called Bullet Train just for some fun. It's 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 final exam time, and I tend to be kind of burned out at this time of year, and so I just needed something fun and silly, and ideally with ridiculous levels of cartoonish gore. And the Bullet Train is it. It's a new Brad Pitt movie. It's five assassins on this train, this bullet train that's going to Kyoto or something and a blood and hijinks ensue. And it's, it's a lot of fun. And it, I was able to turn my brain off for uh, a couple hours. And just, if you, that's what you need, this is what you need bullet train. So there we go. All right. Before we go, just a reminder that Ken and I are going to be doing, well, the bonus show is going to be pretty much all Supreme court all the time. We have a couple of really important cases as well as, Ken's thought on thoughts on Supreme Court ethics, and uh, I'm really looking forward to those conversations. If you are not a supporter and you would like to hear those conversations, well, you can become a supporter. Just go to patreon.com slash politics guys and sign up, or you can support us on Venmo or at politics guys or through PayPal. And you can find the support links in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And just a reminder again, any support that we get during the month of December is going right to Trey for the reasons I talked about at the top of the show. And if you would like to get that midweek show, but you are not in a financial position to support the show, totally not a problem. We understand. Just send me an email, Mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you all set up with that. And whether you're a supporter or not, it really does help if you spread the word. So subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on your podcast app, sharing episodes on social media, greatly appreciated. And if you've got a question, comment, I don't know, weird manifesto or whatever statement you want to issue, you can do that to us at mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our discord for Patreon supporters, which is always a lot of fun. Um, and you'll find links to all of that stuff in the show notes. And finally, a special thanks as always to our executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you'll join us.